0: Welcome to The Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind the scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. One of the wonderful moments in the case was when we basically discovered everything. We sat down with Ken and Beth and we say, we know what happened. And he started weeping. He just said, I knew, I knew it wasn't, I knew it wasn't Brooke. And it it gets me emotional because it was just a profound moment of not only knowing we were going to hold GM accountable, but Ken having this profound sense of relief that he was not
1: the cause of his daughter's death. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, I am the uh, host, Steve Lowry, here with Yvonne Godfrey. And Yvonne, uh, we are doing something uh, a little different this time. What's going on?
2: (laughs) We're live in front of people, which is really exciting.
1: Seeing things like that happen.
2: Steve already ruined it. Podcast over. Um. But thank you all for being here.
1: This is really exciting for us. Yeah, and, uh, you know, when they said we were going to do this, they talked about uh, looking behind the curtain of how the podcast gets done, and I'm not sure that's a good thing because, uh, you know, what you can see is that we're disorganized and we uh, keep lots of notes and then we... uh, we we try and we what we do is we get great guests and our uh, our guests make up for for all of our failings.
2: That's right. There's more sweatpants when it comes to the real podcast. Yeah. But no one can see it. Bye. Right,
1: right. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 uh, we are so excited to have today our guest uh, Lance Cooper, who is not only a very seasoned, very successful trial lawyer, but for today he's an experimental guinea pig because uh, we have never done this before. Uh, so Lance, uh, thank you for coming on here and thank you for uh, being the first one to do this in front of a live audience. Sure. Well, I've, I've
0: got to say that if I'd have known I was an experimental guinea pig, I would not have showed up today, <laughs> right.
1: but, uh... That's, we, we made sure not to tell you that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, Lance, I know everybody here in this room knows who you are, but I want to go ahead and introduce you to the podcast listeners so that they know who you are. Um, and, uh, Lance has been practicing, uh, in Georgia and Cobb County uh, since 1989. Uh, he went to the University of California Berkeley, grew up in California, uh, and then came uh, east to go to Emory uh, Law School and uh, has not only handled uh, just tons of really big cases, especially against product manufacturers, mostly car manufacturers, uh, but has also been the past president of the Georgia Trial Lawyers Association, the past president of the Cobb County Trial Lawyers Association uh, has the recipient of the Stephen J. Sharp Public Service Award and was nominee for the Trial Lawyer of the Year by Public Justice. Uh, and uh, the case that we're here to talk about today uh, was really just a uh, groundbreaking case, and it was, it was really done just by the fantastic work of Lance and his team over at the Cooper firm. And I, I forgot, I always tell everybody where you can find him. If you want to look up Lance, and read about him or his firm, you can look him up at thecooperfirm.com. But uh, Lance, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you all for, for having me here. So, this case that we're talking about um, is the case called uh, Melton versus General Motors, and uh, it involved the, uh, the tragic death of Brooke Melton, who is a 29 year old uh, pediatric nurse. Uh, I think this was her birthday, March 10th, 2010. Um, She was driving uh, to her uh, boyfriend's house, it was a rainy night, uh, and while she was driving her 2005 Chevy Cobalt, she um, uh, hit a puddle, lost control or um, hydroplaned and um, went across the the center line and hit another vehicle, a Ford Focus head-on, was spun down into a, um, a, a creek alongside the road there and unfortunately passed away there. And um, that case, and and the case that we're gonna be talking about sounds like a, in my mind, just listening to those facts alone sounds like a pretty difficult wrongful death case if she's your client, Uh, but what happened in that case is that the work that Lance and his firm did uh, turned this into a recall of over 30 million cars uh, they uncovered about 124 deaths that were linked to this defect of GM and, and uh, ended up in more than two and a half billion dollars in penalties and settlements uh, against GM uh, for their conduct in this case. And so uh, I'm going to have Lance tell most of the story, but just very quickly. Um, What they learned was that the reason why she had lost control that night was not because she was driving too fast for conditions, which was what was written on the accident report, Um, but because her uh, ignition of her car had actually turned off, which caused her to lose steering power, caused her to lose uh, electronic braking power, and caused her airbags to turn off. Uh, and so that's what caused her to go across the center line. And, it, and after Lance's work on uh, this case, um, uncovered uh, that GM, GM had known about this ignition switch problem where their vehicles could get turned off because of uh, either heavy keys or getting it bumped by your knee or just very easily uh, because the torque in turning it and holding it was too low. Um, and, and so that's what happened in this case And um, and the story of of how Lance and his team um, just stayed with this case uh, is really quite amazing. Uh, We're gonna get to it, but I mean, at one point, Lance was able to secure a uh, settlement for $5 million for his client, which was a good settlement. But after he really, you know, uncovered what exactly had happened, uh, had the um, the bravery, uh, the courage to to go and with his clients, uh, Ken and Beth Mountain, uh, rescind that uh, settlement and go after GM again, fight through the motions, and then uh, obviously was able to secure a much larger settlement. But more, also more importantly, to make sure that you know. Millions of these vehicles were looked at, and the GM was held accountable. And we're going to talk about it. I know that uh, that you don't think GM was held accountable enough, but uh, but they uh, we're, we're we're definitely going to talk about that. But Lance, I mean, um, you know, one thing I was thinking about when I was reading this case. You're both you and I do a lot of product liability work, and and when I heard the facts of this case, when you see a, a police report that says that the uh, the, the the decedent. You know, hydroplane was driving too fast for conditions. Crosses the center line, hits an oncoming car. I mean, that sounds like a pretty tough case. How did y'all uh, get past that?
0: Yeah. Uh, before I answer, let me start. I know, um, you know, this this happened over five years ago, and y'all have heard, I'm sure, it's a fair number of you uh, a lot about the GM ignition switch and the melting case. So, I hope this podcast both is informative as to the case, but also for the cases you all have now in your office, some ideas that we talk about today that you can use, uh, whether it's a product case or not, uh, use to to help your clients and also obtaining justice. So that's that's kind of the big picture of what I wanted to say on the outset. I can say that uh, Steve's right. When the case came in, those, those were basically the facts that were presented to me. But what you can't see that I saw was Ken and Beth Melton. And particularly Ken, Ken was, Adamant, you know, my daughter's a safe driver. She was wearing her seatbelt. There had to have been something else that happened here, and uh, and I, I I didn't frankly think there had, was anything at that point. Looking at the um, looking at the police report and just understanding the basic accident investigation, but there was something about uh, my experience with product cases and also just cases in general that, and and the kind of people Ken and Beth were, it made me think, I'm gonna take a look at this one. Uh, We're just not gonna turn it down. And there there was nothing magical about it. It was just, you know, it is interesting. She did lose control. Now we did think she may have hit a puddle. We had the engineers from Applied Technical Services go out to the scene and and they determined quickly it was not a water issue. So we we knew it wasn't a standing water issue. And then we, we did what we always do. We spent a little money to secure the vehicle and then just started down this road, and we'll we'll probably talk about it a little bit more, but what I also wanna say at the outset is, it really was not amazing work. It was the work we do in all of our cases. There happened to be incredible facts that that were uncovered, Uh, but the work we did was, and I've said this before, it was basic blocking and tackling we we did what we do in products cases we secured the evidence we began to hire people to investigate we spent the time and money doing that and then we got into the litigation it was just all right this is what we do when they when they do this we respond this way we respond that way and it ultimately got to the point where they were being held accountable to produce documents and and all of this the evidence got out that ultimately got out but it wasn't and that's why i want to encourage all of you and i when i've spoken about this before is is just uh, it, it was is what I've learned from GTLA and from this group AIEG. It was nothing amazing about it, other than the fact that just learning from other people how to handle a product liability case, and that's what we did here.
1: Yeah, well, and, and I, we're definitely going to talk about the discovery battle that you had, because, and I know you say it's it, it's nothing extraordinary, and, and it is the work that we do when you have a products case. But, uh, but I mean, the documents that were uncovered in this case were were extraordinary, and um, and and. it it wasn't like GM just handed the documents to you. There was a lot of work involved there uh, to get them. But I I wanted to go back for one second, just have you explain, there there were a few facts that you all learned fairly early on that didn't jive with somebody just losing control or, or just hydroplaning. What were some of those facts that, that, that's made Brooks' case different from others. Well,
0: what was interesting was, shortly after we met with Ken and Beth, they, they were getting her mail after she passed away, and they got a recall notice in the mail for her power steering on the Cobalt. And that's really what caused us to, to decide to file the lawsuit. Because the power steering issue, although it really wasn't supposed to relate to somebody traveling highway speeds, it gave us an opportunity to say, hey, we want to look at, more into this and the only way we could do that was to sue GM and the local dealer, which was critical because it kept us in state court. And, uh, and then and begin down that road. And we, we, we hired a, an expert, Kale Conno, give credit to Cale Connolly. We called Cale and we're asking about experts to look at this type of case. And he, refer, he, he put us in touch with Charlie Miller, this mechanic from Mississippi, who's the best expert I ever worked with. And he's not an engineer and he's not a medical doctor. He's a mechanic from Mississippi. But he was fan- And unfortunately, Charlie passed away recently, yeah. really tragically. But and Charlie really started to break it open because he came to us and it's not the power steering. But he went back and looked look, going on the GM website. He said, you know, I found this technical service bulletin dating back to January of 2005, where they were having an issue with their car stolen. And it's not public record. It's just the mechanics find this. And he said, let's look into this. And that's what it really started down the road, uh, so, the, so the power steering issue became not an issue, but it allowed us to file a lawsuit, and then we began that discovery process and the vehicle inspection process to where Charlie's really the, the one that found the first smoking gun, and that was the technical service bulletin that essentially found that back in January of 05, even before they sold the Cobalt to Brooke, they sold hers in August of 05, they knew there was a problem. And they'd actually come up with, it wasn't a fix, but it was a Band-Aid to deal with the ignition torque problem, but they had kept it under wraps at that point for over, uh, over six years. And, and that, that's, what, that's what started us down the road of pursuing discovery about the ignition
1: switch. The, I, I read somewhere else that there were two other things that, uh, that y'all found out pretty quickly. One, I think that when her car was found, the key was in the accessory position meaning the off position not in the uh, on position uh which was odd and then the other thing was that the the uh, sdm download or the black box download that was done showed uh some odd data as well what was the odd data that that showed yeah
0: well actually when we did the download is when we saw that the key was in the accessory position and that's that's before charlie knew about the bulletin he said this is strange this is a and uh, and of course, we deposed the first GM. We took 30B6 deposition of a GM representative about the black box information, and that person knew exactly what had happened, uh, but proceeded for over two hours to basically prevaricate and dissemble and just and essentially give me no answers. Well, I don't know about that. You'll have to. And they, they knew at the time what had happened, what that accessory position meant. It meant that when this crash occurred, her key was in the accessory position. In other words, her engine wasn't running and most of her lights in her vehicle were off. So they knew all that, but they were they were playing uh, playing ignorant. And so we had to, uh, and there were some other issues on there which showed four, three seconds before the crash, you all may know about the black box data, it basically identifies what's going on in the vehicle five seconds before the crash. In three seconds, the engine speed went from whatever it was to zero. And so Charlie, you know, started putting the pieces of the puzzle together for us, and, and that's that was the forensic evidence, which again, uh, it's product liability 101, but you know, we, we realized if, if we're gonna represent Ken and Beth, we need to spend a little, and we, we may, may end up eating the cost, but we need to spend the money to secure the evidence. In this case, if we didn't have the vehicle, uh, we wouldn't have had any case, because we wouldn't have had that evidence that allowed us to continue to, to, to pursue the discovery that we did.
2: This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS.
1: Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked?
2: No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS.
1: Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology. Whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury, these are the experts.
2: They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier.
1: They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by The Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials Podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com.
2: Well, um, speaking of the things that you don't always have in a products case, you also had, uh, Brooke had, had taken her car in to be serviced. Had You had sort of a documented right. complaint about about this problem right before her death.
0: Right. That's where the dealership came in. Ken, and that was another reason, there's two reasons Ken and Beth came in. One was they wanted to, they, they really thought something had, had happened with the vehicle that was wrong. But also Ken had gone to the dealership with Brooke that weekend before, followed her to the dealership because she had had a stalling incident in, uh, in, the, in a subdivision. She called, said, Daddy, can you follow me? I want to take this into Thornton Chevrolet, which he followed her. And while there, they told her they fixed it. And, uh, and one of the things they said to Brooke was, uh, you need to get your gear shifter changed. And it was like $500, and Ken said, "Well, let's wait and get essentially a second opinion. Let's take it to someone else." Well, Brooke died a day later, and Ken, uh, I began to realize that the asset had this tremendous guilt because he felt like he may have talked his daughter out of getting a service that she needed, and that caused her death. And one of the uh, the one of the wonderful moments in the case was when we found. Uh, When Mark could we'll get a little ahead of ourselves here, but we we basically discovered everything We sat down with Ken and Beth and we say do we know what happened and he started weeping He just said I knew I knew it wasn't I knew it wasn't Brooke and it it gets me emotional because it was just a profound moment of not only Knowing we were gonna hold GM accountable But Ken having this profound sense of relief that he was not the cause of his daughter's death
1: Yeah, and and um I, I did want to talk about the, the work that was done where you figured out the, the two different ignition switches and we'll talk about that in a second. But, um, you know, I think from a, anybody who does, I think auto products cases understands this, but maybe not everybody understands that, how important it really is to make sure you get that vehicle, get the product, make sure you do the, the black box download. Because in this case, when, what I saw was that the speed dropped from 58 miles per hour to zero in less than a second. And that's just impossible. And so that was one of the things that Charlie Miller uh, pointed out, I think, was that uh, there there was just no way that the speed could drop like that. So something had happened with the vehicle and that something turned out to be that the engine had turned off. Correct. Um, But um, So talk to us a little bit about how you ended up narrowing it in on the ignition switch and then and then this story about how you found out that it was there had been a uh, there were two different types of ignition switch a change in so we
0: you know charlie found the technical service bulletin and when he did that you know our initial discovery to gm was all about the power steering recall so we uh, amended our discovery to to uh, hone in on the ignition switch you know what they knew when they knew it other claims and lawsuits and complaints and uh and, and, and i think this is an important point to make is, is it, is this typical and you all know this in in any within almost all defendants you know they get the discovery 30 days later can we get an extension can we get an extension we gave them two or three extensions and just basically we're giving them the rope uh, because we could then go to the judge when we knew we knew because the technical service we knew there were documents relating to this they didn't just come up with this out of whole cloth and so we allowed for the discovery extensions, and then finally uh, filed the motion to compel. Probably four or five months after our original discovery was sent out, because we were just being patient. And at the same time, we were doing work behind the scenes. And uh, you know, we get the call from GM's counsel. You know, why'd you file this motion? And uh, he said, "We've got some documents we're going to give you." Well, they gave us a bunch of innocuous, harm, harmless documents to them. And then we kept pushing, and then the, the big next break in the case was we got a hearing date on the motion. And so I got a call from the council, and we got some documents we've discovered, more documents. And they produced them on a flash drive or whatever they produced them on. I, I, I don't understand any of the technology, but Doreen Lundergan in my office does, and she's uh, just an incredible paralegal. I mean, she's just, I can't say enough about Doreen Lundrigan, and some, many of you all know her and how fantastic she is, but she just started digging through the documents, and I think that's another important practice pointer is, particularly in cases where you're trying to get at discovery, when you get it, review it, and review it in detail, uh, because they produced maybe 5,000 documents, but there were about 50 that were called these PRTS reports, which are problem resolution tracking system. And she came in, I'll never forget it, in my office there and said, you're not gonna believe what I found. And I look at it and it's a document from the chief engineer for the Cobalt in 2004, where he experienced a engine shut off because of the ignition switch. And they engaged in this full blown investigation to where in the spring of 2005, they knew the problem was the ignition switch but for, they say it, for, uh, it's not an acceptable business decision to change that, meaning they didn't want to spend the money. And it was less than a dollar a vehicle to change it. And in fact, they had already changed it with the technical service bullets and where it, I don't want to get into all the details, but they had put a Band-Aid on it that if they had put that in Brooks' car, her car wouldn't have stalled and uh, and she would be alive today. So it, 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 it goes to the point of, uh, you know, the persistence in discovery, and they produced these documents, and we then have this time frame between 2004 to 2009 where they had a number of these PRTS reports where they continued to have the problem, they continued to investigate it, and they continued to kick the can down the road and do nothing. And in the meantime, we're thinking to ourselves, there gotta be complaints or lawsuits out there, and so we get a call from GM's counsel, I'm sure you're gonna withdraw your motion now, because we've given you the documents. We say, no, what you have to do is withdraw your objections. And so, of course, if you withdraw your objections and say you've given us all the documents, there's not much we can do with that other than we'll take some depositions to figure out whether you're telling the truth or not. But we can't proceed with the motion. He said, we're not gonna withdraw our objections. So we're we're gonna go forward with the motion then. And and the other reason we thought that was necessary was because all of the documents ended in 2010 at that point. Now, we're in 2013 at this point. And it's like the story just ended, and we're thinking that can't be the case. There needs to be more to this story, and so we just told them we know you have more documents, uh, and uh, and and they said no, we don't. And then I don't want to ramble on and on too much, but the next the next critical point was instead of accepting the fact that there were no lawsuits, claims, or complaints, we called a gentleman up and the Northeast, Sean Kane, who does a lot of investigative work for a number of product liability lawyers around the country and said, Sean, can you identify for us, go on the databases, any cobalts with these kinds of crashes? And he calls back about two weeks later and says, I got one. He said, Wisconsin, uh, Amy Rademacher, I think was the driver, back in 2007, uh, she lost control of her car the cobalt crashed, the airbags didn't deploy, and she and her friend, it was a passenger, were killed. And he said, and in the report that I found online as part of the government database, the officer determined that it was because of the ignition switch, because he had looked in the mechanical background and determined that there was a technical service bulletin. So this police officer in, in this state had basically cracked the case in 2007, but, um, Uh, GM had withheld that from us and another important point there we talked Steve we talked about this yesterday was the government knew about this GM and the government met about this and GM basically bamboozled them into thinking well this really isn't a problem you need to look into and so the federal government whose job it is to protect us basically didn't do anything about it and so this Rademacher case was not given to us by GM it was due to and again, it, it, I just happened to know that we call Sean in almost every case. And so it's not like it was any amazing work, but Sean did the amazing work to dig in and find this. So I called the GM lawyer up and shot straight with him. I said, listen, I don't want to play games with you. I said, there's a lawsuit here and you all know about this. I can see you know about it. And he, he says, well, I, I, I'm sure GM didn't know about it, but I'll look into, you know, and then he calls back and says, well, they really didn't know about it. And that's, you know, there's no more to it. You need to withdraw your motion. Anyway, at that point in time, we, 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 we were basically uh, full speed ahead to our motion to compel hearing.
2: Just as a practice pointer, because I think whether you do products work or not, we all get in these discoveries, fights, you always get these boilerplate objections that are overly broad. You think you're not getting something, or they tell you you've got everything, but they're not going to remove their objections. Um, as you were, I guess two questions. As you were approaching, knowing that you were going to have to follow through with this motion to compel in the hearing, I guess number one, how did you how did you manage the documents that you did have? Were you doing it the old-fashioned way, just kind of looking at each document, um, or were you using kind of a service, an electronic type thing? Um, and then number two, how did you approach everything as you were going to the motion to compel to make sure that the judge knew that you needed to be there, that this wasn't a petty thing, that you had tried to work this out, and that this was something you needed the court's assistance with?
0: Right. So yeah, we did it the old-fashioned way, uh, and I'm. <laughs> uh i wouldn't know how to do it any other way at this point but we're, we're trying to learn um and as far as it gets back to the point of the motion to compel and that is uh you know i, I we just kept telling them and i think this is important because it, as long as they continue to assert objections it continues to give them an out with the judge at some well your honor we objected to that if something comes up down the road and so our position was we don't know if you've given us everything because you got objections out there and, and and the other important point is is a lot of times we send this boilerplate discovery, and what you need to realize is, if I'm going to go before the judge and and say, you know, their objection is without merit, I need to have a bulletproof request. It can't be all documents you've ever, you know, blah blah, blah blah. It needs to be this is what we're asking for. This is what they've objected to. Their objections without merit. You need to overrule the objection and compel them to produce the documents. And if you don't have a tight request or tight interrogatory, it makes it more difficult. So I think that's an important point. And they kept. What was interesting was is that he kept dribbling stuff out so two days three days before the hearing it was on a monday i get a call from the council and he says you know what we found more documents (laughs) and he says and and he said and this this is this is this is this is exactly what he said they're not discoverable based on your requests but our engineer looked at them when he was preparing for his 30b6 deposition so we feel like it's necessary to provide those to you. And uh, I said, I don't care, just give us the documents. And he said, well, we can't get them to you by Monday, but if you withdraw your hearing notice, we'll get them to you next week. And I said, no, that's not gonna happen. We're not gonna withdraw a hearing notice. And so, but what, what came from that was the 2010 to 2013, they had an ongoing cobalt airbag non-deployment investigation going on the entire time our litigation was going on and they for over a year uh, you know refused to acknowledge they even knew about the ignition switch or any issue with the ignition switch so we showed up at the hearing in front of judge tanks I know we talked about this before and 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 the one thing that's obviously critical in discovery is to have a judge that's willing to dig in and and judge tanksley was willing to dig in and we talked about it she She's since retired, but she, she was no nonsense on both sides. If, if if you if you as a plaintiff weren't shooting straight with her, she was gonna call you out, and as the defendant it was the same. And and uh, the hearing was interesting because we went there, and they their position essentially was we've given them everything, but their point was we were talking about this before. They they, they framed it in we've conducted searches according to our search terms and we've given all given them all the documents that we could find based on our search terms and you know my point in, in immediately was and judge tanksley picked up on this as well i mean the, the, your production is only good as a, it's garbage in garbage out if you don't put the right search terms in who knows what you're giving them and she just said i just give them what and we, we asked for it i said i don't care what the search terms are i just want the documents we've asked for and she 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 uh agreed with that essentially and, and ordered them to, uh, and she was, she was very, uh, if I recall the transcript, I read it more recently. She was very perplexed by GM's position that there were no lawsuits, claims or complaints because they were still taking the position at that time. There were no lawsuits, claims or complaints, and she was perplexed at that. And she ordered them to produce documents. And ultimately what came from that was dozens of fatalities, uh, that they had, they had you know, more or less attributed to the ignition switch, although the documents weren't real clear, but the testimony subsequently became clear.
1: Yeah, and I think one thing to point out about that in reading your transcript, uh, Lance, was that um, he, I think the reason why she was so perplexed with the fact they were saying there was no claims, lawsuits, or complaints is because you, through other third parties, through government databases, through, you know, talking to other lawyers, to talking to people like Sean Kane, had actually found some on your own. Right. And uh, we're able to show that to her. And then she said, well, you know, obviously, Mr. Cooper could go out and find these GMY. you know, why are you saying there's none here? Right. Uh, and that's in, and, and, you know, that step in the work as far as the discovery of going out and not just accepting what the defense says, but looking in other sources, as many as you can to gather up uh, other claims. Uh, really, uh, in, in my mind, uh, turned the judge in that case uh, uh, where she didn't believe what GM was saying. Yeah,
0: I agree, I agree. And I think, uh, and that, that, that can, it goes for every case. I mean, to, to identify third-party sources or third, other experts or other independent consultants to really, because, you know, in a lot of these cases, not just product cases, or the defense has a lot of the evidence you need. And, and to, to simply rely on them to be truthful and candid giving you the information is short-sighted and and we we try to in in all of our cases uh identify what are the other sources where we can we can gather in evidence to make sure we got everything we need to represent our client
2: right well especially when they play that game that i hate when you have like a 6.4 call and they're like oh just give us just give us some search terms give us your search (laughs) terms and we'll search those and it's like no i I don't know what you call this stuff. I don't know what abbreviations and what terms you use. I don't want to give you the search terms and then you run your search and you don't find everything, but it's, it's making that clear and it's having a judge who will dig in and, and and get that, that that's a, it's a game.
0: Yeah. And, and, uh, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Drew Ashby. Uh, Drew, uh, really, uh, uh, enlightened me as to, to the importance of e-discovery, and, and I think it is important cool. if, to have e-discovery protocols and identify e-discovery that you can obtain from the defendant, but I have noticed at the same time that defendants try, are trying to use that to say, well, you, we're, we're all good with e-discovery. You give us, we'll agree on search terms, and then we'll uh, produce documents according to those search terms. and, and My thought to that is, I go back to Judge Tanksley, and that is, I I don't know if it's garbage in garbage. I'm not sure what I'm getting. And so I I feel as though, and and we've done this in the more recent cases, is just give us the documents that we've asked for. And it's not onerous, it's just whatever. And if it's too onerous, then convince the judge it's too onerous. But I think when you you do this cat and mouse back and forth, you may be constraining the evidence or, or limiting the evidence that you may be entitled to and may be there because they've been able to convince you, hey, we're going to search these particular columns of evidence where there may be a lot more.
1: Um, I, w- I wanted to go back to something, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that we haven't talked much about is that um, in this case you learned, uh, and it took a lot of work, but you learned that there was a change in the ignition switch that, that actually fixed the ignition switch. And uh, if, if I read it right, the way you learned that was that you, know, you had the 2005 ignition switch Um, and that was fairly easy to turn off, uh, accidentally. And then, uh, Charlie Miller, your expert had purchased a new ignition switch, which had the exact same part number. So GM was saying, these are exactly the same, but when he tested them, they weren't exactly the same. Well, there's
0: actually, it's, it's
1: almost like that. (laughs) Right. uh, Um, a lot of times I get things just happen. No, no, no. (laughs) But what happened
0: was, is Charlie... Uh, said I'm am a mechanic. You need an engineer, and I had some engineers in mind. But he recommended uh, Dr. Richard McSwain out of Pensacola He'd work with him a lot. And I said I had not worked with Dr. McSwain, but I, I knew him by reputation. So I said fine. So I called Dr. Actually, Doreen called Dr. McSwain on my behalf. And in in, in a, a point that which Dr. McSwain says he now regrets, he um he was too busy at the time, so he had Mark Hood in our office uh, provide uh, the, service, the engineering services, which was providential for us because Mark, Mark was fantastic. And uh, so I got to Mark, basically through Charlie, and, uh, and, and Mark was the engineer who uh, began to just investigate the case, but what Mark did was, and again, it wasn't anything that we did, we just hired an expert, he wanted to basically take apart the switch and see how it worked. So he went out to the local Napa or had, had someone go out to the Napa auto parts store and buy a couple of new cobalt switches, you know, where you can replace them now. And, and I didn't know he was doing this. Uh, but he just was trying to figure out, you know, how the switch worked. And he called and, uh, I, I remember it. He called and, and within a first sense or two said, Lance, I figured out what happened. They changed the switch. And what he had done was he had taken apart a, uh, a new switch and realized, and we don't have any of the evidence here, but they basically, there's a spring that uh, holds the, the key into place, whether it's run accessory or off. And if, if the, the longer the spring, the harder it is to turn is basically how it works and they changed it. And Mark, I flew down with Mark and Charlie that, that day because we did, or uh, shortly thereafter, and we did a joint inspection with GM's engineers and experts and essentially um, showed them, not the measurements, but showed them the uh, the difference in torque values between the new and the old. And uh, and they, GM was sort of nonplussed by that and really was not that concerned. Uh, it, but we obviously knew we had a, a, a another smoking gun as far as the, the evidence is concerned. And, and we didn't know at the time all the details, all we knew is the twitch had been changed. And, and Mark had discovered that and that really That changed the entire future of the litigation, including the recalls and everything else, because it showed that GM not only knew about it, but had had come up with a fix, but it chose not to tell the public about it.
1: Yeah, and so I wanted to get you to talk about this uh, engineer that you had the opportunity to depose, uh, who became uh, infamous after this case, uh, a guy named Ray DiGiorgio. Um, He was the engineer who was the head of this this group, uh, and you deposed him about whether or not he had changed the design and what did he tell you in his deposition a, a little backstory, and i hope i'm not yeah going yeah, yeah so no well. do whatever you want and you'll tell me when we
0: need to start wrapping it up <laughs> yeah. um, uh, a little backstory on that because this this is again it's, it's sort of another practice pointer and that is when when we realized the switch had been changed uh we didn't tell gm of course as far as we didn't produce that information to them uh we, we we're trying to figure out what to do with that. And I had Mr. Giorgio's deposition scheduled within the next week or two. And I knew I was gonna have to question him about this because he was the lead engineer. So we called GM's local council and said, and legitimately so, we need to take the depositions of these additional engineers before we put our expert up because we need to make sure. I don't wanna have to put them up twice if, if they testify to things he may rely upon. And they, this, they agreed, they really didn't think much of it. But that was critical because if Mark had talked about it in his deposition before these engineers had been deposed, they would have been able to sort of concoct whatever story they would have concocted. And, and so we had to Giorgio in a deposition and we went through the typical scenario with him. And, and another important point, in, I think in, in all cases, is the 30B6 depositions are important to take the depositions of the corporate representatives. But when you get to the engineers or the in medical malpractice cases, the nurses or whatever case it might be, the local security people in security, uh, negative security cases, the people who aren't used to testifying, that, that understand, that, that take seriously the, the idea that they're sworn to tell the truth, uh, you, and they're not, they're not expert testifiers, and uh, you get much clearer answers. And with DiGiorgio, he was not an expert testifier and when we we put the old switch in front of him and pictures of the new switch he was uh he was dumbfounded at least he acted dumbfounded but you could tell he knew he was looking at GM's counsel and we put both pictures in front of him and said you changed the switch didn't you i did not i didn't know anything about that i don't know anything i know nothing about anything and we called him the sergeant schultz of uh, of gm yeah. and um he um and it, but it, it, it really was devastating for them because we had their lead design engineer essentially committing perjury. All, and we, we'd subsequently discovered that. And, and um, so that, that's how we used that at trial, excuse me, at deposition. And we had the visuals up and it was real simple. I didn't have a lot of technology. I just had an eight and a half by 11 of the one switch and the other switch. And it was pretty clear that they had changed it and he sunk himself a number of times in that deposition by denying uh, denying that they had changed it and that ultimately ended up being the um, another important point and and I think you know you take seriously errata is you know GM knew GM's lawyers knew that he had not told the truth and 30 days later we get an errata sheet in the office swearing that everything he testified to and he had ch- he had a chance to come in and say hey uh, looking back on it I was whatever he could have said and so we had the rat sheet that we thought was just as powerful as the testimony because it
1: gave them 30 days to fix it and they chose not to fix it. Right, uh, and, and uh, I mean, I think it, it later came out after the uh, congressional investigation into this that uh, when it came to ignition switch change documents, his name was on there like 184 times or something like and
0: that. And some other GM engineers. They, they've always right. tried to say it was, Georgia was this rogue employee, but uh, there were other employees that knew about it as well, H- higher level employees, but that was their story and they, they continued to stick to it.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I wanted you to talk us through a little bit, because this was a very unusual from your case. It, so at some point, you know, you had uh, gotten the case to a point where GM wanted to settle the case with, the, with you and they actually did settle the case with you. And then you learned more information after that. So talk through the settlement and then and then the, what you learned after
0: that. they had actually approached us before they produced any of these documents lance we need to we need to sit down and mediate we need to settle this case and uh and i sat down with ken and beth and this is where they are the true heroes in this litigation because i sat down with them and said they want to settle i think they'll pay you a fair amount of money we still had thornton chevrolet in the case for reasons we won't talk about they had a lot of culpability as well for what they had done uh and uh and I said, but I don't think we should because I think there's more out there. And we had that conversation at least three or four times as these documents continue to be produced. They wanna settle, but let's not settle. And every time Ken and Beth would say, we're gonna do what you, have to tell, what you want us to do or what you recommend we do. And that is why we have all these documents. Because if, if we'd agreed to a mediation before all this stuff had come out and we would have settled for the amount we originally settled for, which is what happened, we subsequently discovered they settled with really good trial lawyers, uh, uh, cases before, because a lot of these cases, is, if you understand, the no airbag, the airbag non-deploy cases, someone's at fault in the crash, and a lot of times it's the person who's hurt. So if they come in and offer you a fair amount of money, a normal lawyer in a normal case is gonna say, well, gosh, I mean, they offered uh, a substantial amount of money in the very first case, Amber Rose, uh, young girl who died, around, I, I think, of equal to the cap in, in the state. And they were able to basically—that's how they got away with it. And it's not lawyers not doing their job. I mean, lawyers are doing their job and representing clients in each individual case. And those cases all settled. We just happen to have remarkable clients who just said, "No, we're not going to settle until we discover the truth." And and that's where um, we got ultimately to the settlement because we thought we had run the course that we could with GM. And we still had the issue with Thornton. And to to make a long story short, Thornton knew about the technical service bulletin. Thornton knew about the keychain, the the keychains they should have made. And Thornton didn't do it for Brooke the day before the crash. So GM's position was, listen, we had a bulletin. Our dealer just didn't find it and didn't put this. And Charlie Miller had to admit if the keychain, the key had been fixed. It's not the switch. It's the key. We don't need to get all the details. And so we had a big problem with Thornton. And that's, people say, why'd you settle with GM? We thought, well, th- that was in the best interest of the clients at that point, as far as the case getting ready to go to trial. And, and so that's ultimately what happened. And then um, it, 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 the case uh, settled in the fall of 2013 and there were a couple months passed and we were looking into filing a class action lawsuit, but I am not a class action lawyer, so I don't know much about that. And then it was funny, my father called me beginning of February of 2014 and said you're in the paper I said what he's with the Waffle House up in Barrett Parkway that morning he picked up the USA Today and we were on the front page of the business section and he says and he was he was I'm proud of you son and all that but he uh so I I, I went and looked at I read it and I thought wow this is but then I I thought wait a minute there's they're recalling like 700,000 cars there's like millions of these cars with this switch and what GM had done is just issued this little one page recall it's sort of innocuous, well, we found there's an issue and we're gonna recall it and no, you know, no, no, no harm here. And that's how it turned out. And we, again, Sean Kane, um, I called Sean and said, what do we do about this? There's millions more of these cars. And John said, Sean said, let's file a, uh, a timeline query saying even on these 700,000, they had a duty under federal law to, to notify the government within five days. And it's been a decade they've known about this. And we also need to tell them there's million, millions and more cars involved. And so we filed this timeliness query and I think a couple of days later, GM expanded the recall. GM's point was we didn't expand it because of any lawyer letter or anything like that. We just, we realized based on our investigation, we should have done this to start with. And then ultimately it blew up from there with all these recalls. And that's where at the congressional hearing, uh, the document got out where Giorgio did make the change that they had fraudulently concealed from us. And then all these, this evidence of these other cases came out and I sat down with uh, I sat down with Ken and Beth and said they, they committed fraud. And I said, I think there's still more out there. In particular, I said, the in-house lawyers, GM's general counsel's office was communicating with their outside counsel over these last 10 years on these individual cases. We need to get those documents to see whether there was some sort of crime fraud that was going on. And I remember sitting down with Ken and Beth in the, in the office with them saying, and they, they they were not people of great means. I mean, they were—they were—they were middle-class folks trying to pay their bills every month. And they uh, sat down with them in the office and said, "Ken and Beth, I—I uh, I want to. Uh, I think we should rescind the agree- offer to rescind the agreement, give the money back, because we need to find out what happened. And I don't think anyone else is going to be able to." I said, so "We can be back in front of Judge Tanksley because Thornton was still in the case." And I said, I know this is gonna take some time. I know it's gonna, and they basically, we talked for about five minutes and they said, we're in. We're in. And uh, so I sent a letter the next day uh, to GM. We got a letter from, this is now Kirkland and Ellis back saying, pound sand, we have a settlement. And it kind of went from there.
1: Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need?
2: really great lawyers like me.
1: That is exactly right. Really great (laughs) lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, They also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases?
2: I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to say our website.
1: Our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does.
2: Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, Reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I I
1: definitely need some reputation management. I'd like to find out exactly what that does.
2: We need to look into that one a bit more. (laughs)
1: Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital Law Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. Right. And so you ultimately were able to get GM uh, back into the case and, and able to uh, Really get to the bottom of all the documents that were out there about GM. Yeah, and so we we, we got
0: uh, Beasley Be, Allen got involved Jerry and Greg and Cole and others got involved and we, we decided to, uh, to work together on the second case and um, Yeah, it was it was it was the most uh, encouraging and discouraging time of my practice it was encouraging because ultimately GM had to produce Uh, All of those internal documents those those which would ordinarily be considered uh, Privileged and and it was remarkable What these lawyers were telling GM back in the as of early as the mid-2000s about The problems with these cases and they why they should settle them But there was there was all this thing we should settle we should settle and then we should move on and there was never We should settle and then we should get to the root of the problem I mean and even lawyers in-house lawyers have a responsibility, but it was always let's just kick this can down the road, get this client, get this plaintiff paid off and just move forward. And that's when I realized how, how remarkable what Ken and Beth did, because they easily could have been in that situation. And I can tell you, we, I would not be here today. This would never have been uncovered in all likelihood, uh, because these vehicles were getting older and this was, uh, uh, they, they had been able to, to basically cover it up for almost a decade at that point. And so what Ken and Beth did was pretty remarkable. And they um, ended up, the problem was, is we got sucked into this MDL. And I know you all have heard about the goods and bad and ugly about MDLs. But, um, uh, you know, we, we essentially lost control of the case to a certain extent because of what was going on in the MDL. And i sat down with ken and beth after all the documents had produced and everything had been done and we got a trial date set after the first mdl trial and it was just i don't need i don't need to get into all that other than was just a mess right and uh and i said ken and beth you've done your job there's nothing more you can do and they asked me what would a jury do and i said well and i was pretty candid with them and you all know this i said on a, on, a, on a wrongful death case, they, they, may, they can award whatever they want to award, but there's generally a range. And I said, punitive damages under Georgia law, they can award 100, 200 million dollars. I said, the problem is GM has paid all these fines, issued these recalls, engaged in this compensation plan, and all that evidence is probably gonna come in. And I said, the jury may be, get mad at GM, but you know, they can also look at GM and say, well, they paid their penance, so to speak. I said, in addition to that, we get a big to damage divert. Let me just tell you, practically, the state's going to take three quarters of it. And then the other quarter is going to be taxable to you. I said, let's just talk grass tax. What's going to happen if this all happens? And I said, not, 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 not to mention the fact we're going to be five years down the road. And it wasn't about the money to them. Uh, it really was not. It was more about the uh, having it over with. Uh, and and I'm, I'll make this point, I think it's important. We never talked about money in this case until the day before the first mediation. They didn't care, they really did, were not. They were, their focus was on a lot more other than that. And, and I and I'll hear a lot of clients say that, but they really were truly like that. And at the end of the day though, I had to advise them. And I remember telling them, I think we should settle the case, or we should try to settle the case. And you can see the relief in Beth. I can't, excuse me, Beth in particular, She she just, She'd, we had press conference after press conference. They did yeoman's work. They went up to con- Congress. They did everything they needed to do to get the word out, but their job was done, and I told them that, and I didn't think they would pay, and I called Ken Feinberg, who was the compensation. He actually called us wanting to settle the case, and long story short, worked with Mr. Feinberg and got the case settled.
2: Well, I think one of the ways that the money did matter early on, and, and you touched on this, was that... was that this was a perfect example of how damages caps and tort reform can hurt public safety, because there were, as you mentioned, other good firms in good states that had caps on damages, and so it just wasn't financially viable for them to fight the fight in discovery and to spend the money to find out what was really happening.
0: True story, Rademacher, the case I told in Wisconsin, that the the, the families went to uh, one of the top product liability lawyers in Wisconsin. Uh, that one of the girls' families did, and the lawyer told them first of all, you know, there was fault on the driver, and they had caps in Wisconsin. And this lawyer said it's just not worth pursuing. You think about that. I mean, if that case without tort reform, that case would have been pursued, and I have no doubt a good lawyer like that it would have a good opportunity to uncover that. In, in in that respect, Brooke would be alive today if it was uncovered before 2010. So, and I made this point to a number of people: is you know, tort reform is not. Only injurious to the individual who's suffering it in a particular case it's injurious to our society because it, it prevents lawsuits meritorious lawsuits pr- from being filed and tort reform prevented that Rademacher case from being filed and if it had been filed who knows how many lives would have been saved And you turn around and say well yeah but the government's supposed to step in and fix it we all know how that how that worked in this case so uh, the, the, the civil, ju- and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I think we, we can't say this enough to the public. The civil justice system is the most critical component for accountability, it, and it's the free market. It's, it's saying, hey, you sold this product, you made a profit on this product, but our system of government says, if you sell a defective product, there's accountability, but that occurs in a court of law in front of a jury. And, and the government is incompetent, for the most part, to deal with that. We've seen that since the Pino back in the 70s. It's always trial lawyers who are discovering these defects. And the government comes in after the fact and has to have, to, has to have some excuse as to why they didn't uncover. And, you know, and, and I, I say this. I mean, after GM, people are saying, well, is this ever going to happen again? And then we had Takata with the airbags. It, it's going on right now. There are cases out there now, I'm sure, where we're gonna find that manufacturers at this moment are doing things that are they're harming consumers and only trial lawyers. And the clients that they represent who are courageous enough to pursue these cases will um, will get to the bottom of it. That's, yeah. that's my soapbox, I apologize. No,
1: and, I, and I think it's definitely a, a soapbox that we need to talk about on this. And, and everybody in this room uh, certainly knows about it. And I, and I should have said it on the podcast that we're with the Georgia trial lawyers right now. Uh, but, um, but I, I want to go back to the Rademacher case for a second because, um, you, you know, you I didn't realize this, but you'd said that a police officer had actually figured out what happened in that case in in 2007. Right. And, um, and then because of the caps that Wisconsin had on wrongful death cases, basically the law firm wouldn't really pursue it, or no law firm would. Um, but, I mean, that really just does, does bring home, um, you know, how... Uh, a You know, putting a arbitrary cap on what somebody's life is worth, uh, I mean, really cost the rest of uh, the U.S. and and ended up with millions of cars on the road that shouldn't have been on the road.
0: Yeah, exactly. No, that's and and that's 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 the result of tort reform is wrongdoers are not held accountable, and that's that's what it is.
1: I wanted to talk something you've mentioned it a little bit here, but I wanted to talk more about it. In you know. Um, the regulatory agency for auto manufacturers is the National Highway Transportation or Traffic Safety Administration. And they have the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards. And anybody who's done cases uh, against auto manufacturers knows that the very first thing that they say when they go in front of a jury is that uh, we met or exceeded all Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards. Uh, So this is a great car. Um, Talk about uh, the shortcomings of NHTSA, or and I'm not saying you know just them, but I mean you know their agency isn't able to deal with problems like this and how they uh, miss problems like this and and talk a little bit about uh, about Nitsa and. The, and well, the, you know,
0: as we know, this, this federal motor vehicle safety standards are minimum standards, and, and car companies recognize they should design above those standards, but when they go in front of a jury, they have this amnesia about their due care requirements, and they say, well, we met the minimum standards, so we, how can... If the federal government has decided this vehicle's not defective and not recalled this vehicle, how can you, uh, as a jury, decide that it's defective? And that, that's the, the sum of the argument. There's motions and lemme that can handle that to a certain extent, but that's the sum of the argument. And it's just, it's just it, it, and this, let me tell you how it came up in the melting case. Ken and Beth, rightfully, just as uh, ordinary consumers, said during the middle of this litigation when this ignition switch issue came out, can we notify the government about this? And I said, well, let me tell you my experience about that with other lawyers. And I said, when we've notified the government in the past about concerns we've had about vehicles, the government sometimes has come out and said, well, we don't, essentially, we're not going to find a defect here. And then the manufacturer waves that around and says, well, there's no defect. And so I've, I've said my, my experience, and it was in a couple of actual cases, was it's harmful to contact the government because they're likely going to hurt your case because of the and it's a revolving door we all know about and and, and people don't like to be too critical and it's so i'm real critical and it's so i mean it, it, it's it, it people that go to the agency oftentimes the higher level political appointees they end up leaving and become a lobbyist for the manufacturers and it's just a, it's a vicious cycle and so the, the government is not uh either able at this both institutionally as well as just because the personalities involved able to properly regulate uh these auto manufacturers and i told ken and beth i'm not we we should not go to the government in this case and um and they chose not to and they were concerned about that but i said i think it'll be harmful and ultimately i think i think it would have been because these vehicles were a little older and just as in 2008 and 9 when gm met with NHTSA and NHTSA didn't do anything my concern was they were going to do the same and and i think that uh we haven't seen much difference since then. The, the government says it's changing, and GM says it's changed, but I can tell you in a couple of cases I have with GM, as I've
1: said before, they're still the same old GM. One thing I was just wondering out of curiosity in this case, is when Brooke was involved in the collision you there was another vehicle, uh, the Ford Focus, and I think that person was represented by a lawyer, and they may have actually pursued a claim against uh, uh, against Miss Melton. I don't know, but um, did that, driver ever pursue anything against General Motors they did not they they weren't
0: hurt that significantly and, and that that was never pursued
1: they uh, no. that's again
0: one of the reasons they came in though Ken and Beth there was some concern that the driver was gonna bring a claim because Brooke had come in, in the lane and, and I actually they came to me through an insurance adjuster that I had <laughs> settled a case with recently the adjuster Uh, recommended us, so that's another practice point, or be nice, as nice as (laughs) you can. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to remember. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh, Well, that's tremendous work. Um, Well, Lance, we've talked for about an hour here, and I just wanted to make sure, is there anything else that you want to make sure that our listeners know about um, the Melton versus General Motors case uh, that we haven't talked about already? No, I appreciate you uh, giving me the time to speak. Well, you know, and like I said, um, this has just been uh, tremendous work. And I know you said it's just the same thing you do every day. But, I mean, this case really stands out. And, and, I, and I will say that not only, you know, for you and your team that worked on this, but really, the, you know, having clients like Ken and Beth Mountain who are willing to stick with it, to see it through, and to make sure that, um, you, you know, that their, their daughter is remembered and, uh, and that the, the car company is held accountable is so important. And so, um, but it's really just uh, fantastic work and we uh, and wish nothing but the best for the Melton family. I'll
0: let them know, thank you.
1: Well, and uh, I wanted to remind everybody on the podcast that we've been talking to Lance Cooper, uh, senior uh, partner at The Cooper Firm, and you can look up Lance at thecooperfirm.com. Thank you so much, Lance. Thank you. All right, and thank you, DJ. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website.
2: Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial, you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at great Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email, right? Exactly.
1: <laughs> we only need a uh, positive commentary. Yeah,
2: we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google play or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We,
1: we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast On The Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again.
2: Thank you for listening.